everyone. Welcome to the Wealth Investment Network podcast. I'm here with my guest today, Brian Burke of Bigger Pockets fame and from Praxis Capital. So what, what, welcome, Brian. Thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brian. It's going to be pretty confusing when Brian's talking to Brian, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I spell my name correctly, though, you know, so. There's of that. course. <laughs> Do you ever get the thing where they, they spell it brain instead of Brian? I get that all the time. Yeah. I don't understand maybe how they do that with Yeah, yeah. I kind of take it as a compliment too. I don't know how they do that when mine's with a Y, but they mix up the letter and transpose them. So there's that. Well, hey, we wanted to talk about sponsors today, and this is something we've jabbered quite a bit about online. Um so can you just tell us a little bit about how you think about sponsors and you know if I'm a limited partner or an investor kind of new to the to the syndication game or trying to scope out a deal what should i look for well i mean it, there's a there's a lot to look for i think i put about 350 pages of things to yeah. look for in the hands-off investor but it's uh it really comes down to uh the the team that you're looking to invest with and that means you know the character of the sponsor uh, and the sponsor's principles is really paramount uh, and their character is evidenced by uh, their track record, their experience, their time in business, uh, what other investors might have to say about them, the, the results that they've delivered and how they've reacted in, um, let's call it a downside scenario. When the chips are down, you know, how do they, how do they uh, work their way out of uh, those situations. And, and that reveals uh, a sponsor's character. And really that's what it all comes down to because it doesn't matter how good they are or, or any of that stuff. If, you know, deep down inside they're a thief, uh, you know, they're gonna steal your money. So bottom line is, is their, their character is really what you're banking on. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because there's probably a lot of people entering these sorts of investment opportunities right now that haven't done it before. And they haven't been through a downstroke like we had in 08, 09, or maybe even the dot-com bus. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, how character is revealed in those sorts of market cycles and, you know, how it benefits investors to kind of hitch their, hitch their sled to somebody that has been through one of those before and really knows how to account for risk the right way? Yeah. So from the passive investors perspective, you know, the, the the question you want to ask, uh, well, first of all, is how long have you been doing this is a really good question. And if the answer is two or three or four years, you're not going to be able to get into phase two of the question because they won't have an answer. But phase two of the question would be, OK, in the last downturn, uh, you know, tell me about the worst deal you guys had. You know, what happened and what did you do and what was the outcome? I think that's a great way to learn about how somebody, you know, handles it when, when things aren't going well. And if they've been around long enough and they survived through the major recession of like, you know, 07, 08, 09, they're going to have some uh, deals that went sideways. And, uh, you know, what they did is going to reveal a lot if they say something like, oh, you know, we just let all those go to foreclosure. Uh, and then, um, you know, we just, you know, changed our company name and reopened back up, then, you know, that's going to give you yeah. one answer. <laughs> or if they say something like, you know, we, uh, we dug into our own pockets and, you know, and we floated this deal until we could get across to the other side and, 
and ultimately we sold it, investors got their money back, or even maybe the investors suffered a small loss, whatever the case may be, did they at least try? Uh, you know, that's really what you're looking for. Right, right. So, I mean, how, how do you flush that out? Because it seems like there, there are a lot of younger sponsors, and especially I've seen a lot of them on bigger pockets that I feel like are great guys. You know, they're good operators. They know how to underwrite a deal. They're relatively conservative with things. They ask the right questions, but they're still relatively young, you know, so they haven't had the time to kind of build up their, their capital stack. Um, and they really haven't been tried during that period. So if I'm an investor looking at investing with somebody like that versus somebody that's been through the cycles, what should, I mean, it seems like I'm taking on more risk investing with one versus the other. So the reward probably should go with the risk. What, what should I look for to decide if it's still a good risk adjusted, I guess, bet to make on somebody yeah. without the track record? Yeah, you called it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is risk, right? The longer somebody has been doing this, the more track record they have, the more you can dig into, uh, you know, how they handle themselves when things aren't going well is all a risk mitigation tactic, really. I mean, that's really what investing is, right? You're seeking the highest return and the lowest risk. That's what everybody wants, but you don't get them both at the same time. Generally right. speaking, you're going to trade one for the other. Uh, and so, you know, just because somebody uh, didn't survive a down cycle and give you a great story to tell about how they got their way out of it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a bad sponsor, but it does mean that they're untested. Right. It does mean you don't know how they're going to react if the chips are down. Uh, and that adds a significant uh, element of risk to you as an investor. And you have to decide for yourself whether you want to accept that risk and make the investment anyway or pass on that risk and, you know, and stick to investing with somebody that's been through that and has that experience. Because I'll tell you, as, as a survivor <laughs> and one that has been through that, I will tell you that uh, it changes everything, no matter how right. you think about real estate. Uh, during the good times, uh, if you it's only during the bad times that you a learn the real lessons and and b change your outlook and uh, your whole approach to investing in general. And so it's, you know, it's a it's a different category of investment on an untested sponsor. And that, and that means a higher level of risk. Now, maybe that means a higher return. Uh, or maybe it means a smaller allocation and you're spreading your money right. around more and not putting too much uh, with that one sponsor. I mean, there's really no way to eliminate risk. All you can do is mitigate it and avoid it. Yeah. So how do you think about that for your deals? I mean, you've been around and you bring up a good point. And this podcast is really trying to look at things from both perspectives. It's the sponsor's perspective in terms of trying to diversify their base of investors and make sure that they have the right people on their team because the limited partners are partners in the deal. They're, they're an important part of, you know, the overall team that's helping to make the deal work. Um, in theory, the, the, you know, the price of the securities are like basically what the investors are getting uh, should go down for a sponsor as their track record goes up. So, I mean, how do you think about that for your deals? Uh, I know that uh, you're out trying to compete for capital with the rest of the sponsors, and I'm sure that you know some of the pe some of the people that are investing with you, maybe a lot of them, are investing with other people as well. I mean, what's the right amount of ca their capital to take into your deal 
And how do you have that conversation with them when the choice is basically between them putting a lot of their capital in your deal or maybe putting some of it in somebody else's deal to try and spread their risk out? How do you approach that conversation? Well, I, I advocate for people to spread their risk. I mean, investing, uh, successful investing is uh, eliminating a single point of failure. Right. And a single point of failure can result from many different things. You know, so when you're investing in a passive syndication, you want to have diversification of geography, uh, you know, having uh, assets in different locations in the country. So that if something happens in one location, maybe your other assets are OK. Uh, it means having diversification of product type. Maybe you want to invest in some residential, maybe some commercial, maybe some hospitality, whatever the case may be, you want to spread around a little bit there. And diversification amongst sponsors. You, know, you don't want to put all your money with one group. Uh, personally, me as a sponsor, I really don't want to have all of someone's money. I mean, yes, we're in the business of raising money. And obviously, the more money we raise, you know, the more real estate we can acquire and all this other stuff. But you know, we've got plenty of investors and raising capital isn't really a problem for us. So I would rather have, uh, you know, a lower percentage of more people's capital than a higher percentage right. of fewer. Uh, it just helps me sleep at night and it should help the investors sleep at night. So I, I think, you know, being a successful sponsor means thinking about this business from the perspective of your customer, just like any other business. You need to provide a product that's right for your customer. And, and in our case, our customer is our investor. Uh, you know, we're a financial services business and we're here to provide a service for, for our clients. Uh, and it would be a disservice to them to say, you know, give us all of your all of your money and don't diversify. They, they need to diversify. Yeah. And I know that this kind of gets at how capital forms, too. I mean, there's uh, investing in a syndicated asset across many sponsors. And then a lot of people take the approach that they want to put their money with an asset manager too, because a private equity fund might perform that same function. You know, as a limited partner, what should I look for in one opportunity versus the other? Uh, I could make, you know, bets with a bunch of sponsors across different locations and kind of take a more active approach to being able to manage that those same things that can be done in a fund, or I can make the decision to put it with a fund manager who could do those things for me. Can you talk about why I would choose one versus the other? Yeah. I mean, part of it is just having some control and, you know, you can put your money with a fund manager who's going to invest with other operators. Uh, but you might not know who those operators are. You're assuming that the fund manager is going to do a good job vetting them and, and pick the right ones. And, and some fund managers are better than others at, at doing exactly that. Uh, another reason you might choose to go direct is really you're cutting out the middle person. Uh, you know, when you go to a fund manager, they're getting, you know, so the operators taking, you know, their promote and then the, uh, the investor, which is the fund is taking their promote. And so you've got a double promote situation that by the time the, it gets down to you, uh, you know, there's been a lot of hands in your pocket. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it has uh, some friction on, on your return. So you get paid for doing the work yourself uh, by choosing your own sponsors and investing with them directly. Um, or you could look at it like a cost uh, to you by, uh, you know, having that those hands in your pocket by, you know, investing with the middleman, letting them pick the sponsors. So it really just depends on how much control you want to have and yeah. how much uh, capital you're willing to give up for that privilege. 
Yeah, and I think that part of that is the challenge is the the investors have to know how to underwrite some of the projects themselves, and it's kind of hard to be good at underwriting an apartment deal and a retail deal and a, you know a ground up development project in a different location. So, and I know your book talks about a lot of these things to look for, but you know, seems like a lot to ask of an investor to be able to do that across a bunch of different asset types. And in theory, I understand that it would work from a diversification standpoint. And that kind of gets at, you know, do we really, you know, is the right counsel to tell people to bet more on the jockey or on the horse? And that's sort of like the, the metaphor that gets used a lot in angel land that I used to be in. But, you know, we talked a lot about sponsors, but, you know, a good sponsor can have an average deal and still make it great. Um, there are some, you know, not so good sponsors that run across great deals. Um, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a great jockey or a great horse? Uh, it's, it's all the jockey. Uh, the uh, the horse is, is really just the method of conveyance, right? If you If you have a bad sponsor, they can ruin a perfectly good real estate deal. Right. So it, it really doesn't, it, the, the deal doesn't matter at all. And this is a problem that we hear a lot where people ask the, the question, and it's one of the most common questions that I hear, how do I find a deal to invest in? I want to invest in a passive real estate syndication. How do I find a deal? And my answer is always the same. It's that you're asking the wrong question. The question right. is not, how do you find a deal to invest in? The question is, how do I find a sponsor to invest with? Because if you're asking that question and you're going out and you're looking for sponsors that have experience, a track record, time in the business, uh, you know, deliver results, high character, high moral character, all those things. If you can find a few sponsors like that, you decide who you want to invest with, then all you have to do is sit back and wait for them to bring you deals. Uh, you don't need to go and look for anything because if you are working with a good sponsor, they should be bringing you good deals and you don't need to worry about, uh, about the deals they'll come. Right. Yeah. I think some of that decision set too, and I, I talk about this some on some of my posts, but how much time should I allocate in my decision matrix? You know, I might have, let's say I have a quarter million dollars to invest and, you find a good, I go out and I do what you tell me to do. I find a couple of good sponsors. Um, they'll probably have consistent deal flow. I, you know, I'm not going to be able to fill all my allocation there if I'm doing the right things. I want to be able to spread it out across sponsors. Over what time period, you know, would those good sponsors generally be able to, to place the capital? And, you know, I, I do have to probably account for that in my returns and putting it in syndicated assets versus in the def, into a fund model. And how should I be thinking about that? Yeah, it's true. And that's why, you know, having multiple sponsors that you, you know, kind of so-called pre-approved is a is a good place to be, because then when one brings a deal along, uh, you're ready to go and you're ready to strike. I mean, you know, a couple of funny things I've noticed. One is whenever an investor contacts us out of the blue in the very beginning, uh, the first deal we show them is not usually the deal they invest in. And that's the smart thing to do. I mean, most sponsors, right. most uh passive investors will, you know, will send me, you know, send me this deal, they look at it, uh, you know, they think about it, and then they don't do it. And they wait till the next one you bring them to go, okay, now I'm ready. And, and there's a good reason for that. I mean, what you what they should be doing and passive investors should be doing is they should 
look at the sponsor's, you know, track record and history and all that stuff. And then they should look at a deal and look at how it's underwritten and, you know, do all the homework on the math and double checking all the uh, assumptions and all the things that I talk about in the book. And then once, you know, that's kind of the second phase of the due diligence, really. And then when the next deal comes up, you're pretty much ready to go because whatever they present to you is going to be just what you've seen before. You already know their approach to looking at deals. And then when they show you something, you're ready to strike right away. And for a really good sponsor, it's not unusual for them to fill an offering very, very quickly. I mean, right. I, I remember the first deal, the first big deal I ever syndicated big for me, it was two and a half million dollar capital raise. It took us 18 months to raise the capital. Wow. And, you know, now we, you know, launched a hundred million dollar fund uh, at the end of last year. And, you know, we'd raised 50 million of it in like uh, four or five days. So, you know, if if you have a really good sponsor and they have a limited size offering, it's going to fill fast and you won't have time to spend, uh, you know, weeks and weeks analyzing the sponsor and analyzing the deal, you're going to want to make a quick decision. So you'll you'll have want to have seen all that stuff ahead of time, and you shouldn't have to wait too long if you got multiple sponsors in your queue. Uh, you know, as they present deals to you, you can evaluate them and decide which one you want to do. Yeah, and I think part of that is just human nature too. This is how relationships form, right? You know, the guy can say everything great on the phone and look, I've got a big fund and I've got a big track record, but there is some indecision, and I think maybe it takes you know, missing that first opportunity for some people to want to really buy in to the next opportunity that comes along. And, you know, I like to think about it like dating a little bit too. You know, you, on either side, you can't really be too necessitous. So do I wait three days before I call or do I, you know, so <laughs> it is somewhat like that. You're right. And it's also kind of like uh, real estate sales, right? For a real estate agent, they get a brand new buyer client it's not very often that they make an offer and buy the very first house you show them. I mean, oftentimes you'll go look at a few houses. Maybe you'll even make a few offers, uh, you know, and you're low balling because you want to test the market. And finally, after not getting, you know, three or four houses you put an offer in on, you know, you finally find one you yeah. love and you're offering 20 grand over asking. And, yeah. you know, the minute you walk in the front door. And, you know, this isn't much different than that. It's, you know, you're going to look at different sponsors. You're going to look at the materials that they produce. You're going to compare one to the other and you're going to decide like, okay, well, this sponsor really is very thorough, shows me all the information, answers all my questions and the materials. I literally don't even have to call them up to ask them anything because everything is right here versus, you know, that guy, the materials are sloppy. There's spelling errors everywhere. I can't follow the math from, you know, from the rent coming in to the investor dollar being distributed out. I can't, I can't follow the trail. Uh, you know, when you'll see kind of like where you want to be and where you don't want to be after you, you look at these things for a while. Don't just go like what, you know, find me a deal to invest in. Oh, here's a deal. Okay, great. Sign me up. Uh, it's not, not really the best, you know, sequence of due diligence. Yeah. Yeah. Digging in on that a little bit. What do you see a lot from sponsors? I know you probably look at other people's offerings just as from a competitive standpoint, you know, what are the games that you see? I know you're in the apartment syndication business mostly, but what what are the games that you get see see get played with the pro formas or like what are the common things that people do to try and tune their model so that it looks the way that they want it to look versus um, somebody else that's taking a more conservative approach in their underwriting? Uh, oh, the list goes on and on. Uh, I, I think probably one of the most egregious errors that I see, or maybe I shouldn't even call it an error, perhaps it's intentional, is 
a, a very large jump in first year income relative to an annualized, you know, trailing three month income. And, and then, you know, the sponsor will justify it by saying, well, you know, we're going to raise all the rents $300. Right. Therefore, uh, that's why the, uh, you know, the gross re uh, income jumps by a you million know, dollars in the first year. Uh, you're forgetting, of course, that, you know, you have to raise those rents in increments as people move out or leases expire and you got to renovate right. those units, you know, and all that other stuff. And it takes time for that to happen. That's one really common one. Another really common one is, you know, fudging the exit cap rate and, yep. you know, which inflates the ultimate resale price or not even not even explaining how they arrived at the ultimate re resale price where it appears as they just made one up. Uh, that's another thing that, that I see. Another one is um, they underestimate the amount of capital they're going to need to raise. So therefore, you know, instead of raising $10 million, it's, it was what they really need. They're raising $8 million because, you know, they weren't thinking about this and that and the other thing. And so, of course, and the returns look higher because the dollars out against $8 million is a higher return than the same dollars out against $10 million. Uh, that's that's another one that I see. And then, of course, there's the underwriting errors like, oh, well, you know, the property's 3% vacant, so I'm being conservative and underwriting to 5%, ignoring that the market is really 8% vacancy. Right. And as soon as they bring rents all the way to real market rents, then the occupancy is going to go to real market occupancy. And it's only 98% because, you know, the rents are $400 below market right now. Uh, so, you know, just kind of all of those little things and you got to know what to look for when you're looking at these income statements to to see when they're fudging the numbers. Right. Yeah. The, the exit cap rate one always gets me a lot, you know, because I my crystal ball is not great. I think maybe yours has been buffed a little bit more regularly than mine has. So how, can you tell me how you think about that? You know, because you're probably going into these projects and you're looking to execute some business plan. I don't know what, over what period of time, probably three, five years, something like that. Um, what, how are you thinking about that exit cap and, you know, what valuation you're going to put on the property when you exit to a, a new buyer? Yeah, you're right. It's difficult. And, and no, it really is kind of a crystal ball scenario. It's really a wild ass guess. I mean, no, anybody that tells you they know what the exit cap rate is going to be is full of it. There, nobody knows. It's just a guess. So, uh, you know, the first step is you got to understand what cap rate really is. And it's a it's a it's a barometer, a, a thermometer of market sentiment. That's what it is. And so you have to look at what the market is today and try to figure out when I go to sell, is the market going to be better than it is right now or is it going to be worse than it is right now? Now, I almost you know, nowadays, I pretty much always assume the market's going to be worse when I sell. Right. That means that the cap rate when I go to sell is going to be higher than the cap rate today. Uh, how much higher is, of course, you know, the $10 million question. Uh, it it kind of depends to me on how much worse I think things are going to get. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, I would look at today's uh, in-place cap rate and, you know, I would inflate it maybe a tenth of a percent a year and call it good. And you know, now what I'm looking at, it's like, I'm gonna to take today's in-place cap rate, add 25, 35, maybe 40 basis points, and then uh, increase it 10 uh, basis points a year uh, to get to where, because I think we're gonna see, you know, some significant amount of jump uh, in cap rates in the next 12 months. You know, that's just an opinion and 
you know, who knows, maybe I'll be wrong yet again and it's going to keep going down. That was well, kind of crazy. It's nice if you're wrong and you're wrong and it improves the, the model versus you're wrong and, you know, you went in assuming that it was going to get better and it, you know, that ends up blowing your returns. I mean, I know you've been underwriting these things for a long time. What percentage of the overall deal returns are generally delivered by that exit cap rate assumption? Well, it depends on whether you're talking about assumed returns or actual returns. Now, assumed, we're usually uh, we're usually looking at fifty to sixty percent of the return usually comes from reversion. Right. Uh, you know what we're finding in actual practice, it's like eighty or ninety percent, and wow. that's because we've been. Uh, you know, this is just in our own portfolio. We've just been selling. Uh, extraordinarily early because the market has been on fire. And so, you know, we've been taking three to five year holds and selling them in 18 to 24 months. And you don't even have time to really build up much income. And, right. you know, then you sell and you're doubling the purchase price and two and a half Xing the equity and it's all off of the exit, which is why we're selling, uh, frankly. Uh, but if you assuming that you know, you have more balanced market conditions than what we've seen over the last, you know, two, three years. Uh, I think you're more in that, you know, your your reversion is going to be 40 to 60 percent of your uh, right. of your return. So that's probably something that people should dig in on and, and put a lot of scrutiny towards. If it's 50 or 60 percent of the overall picture that's get, getting painted, seems like that's a good place to look. And then, you know, you mentioned the the assumptions on the escalators for the rents and like aside from that, what are some other big things that people should look for? Is a just a first pass? Is this person making good assumptions and do I really want to dig in and spend more time with this sponsor? Yeah, one one thing to look at is the property tax assessment and take a look at what the historical property taxes were and what they're projecting the property taxes to be and determine whether or not they're actually reassessing for a sale. And then does that jive with the local jurisdictions uh, practices with uh, as, it, as it relates to property taxes? Couple of examples like Arizona, for example, they don't reassess on sales. So, you know, seeing the historical taxes and then a, a 5% increase uh, in year one after the sale is, is probably a reasonable assumption. Uh, but in, you know, Texas, Georgia, Florida, you know, any of these, a, a number of other states that reassess upon sale, uh, you could see a much more significant jump in property tax uh, than, than just a small uh, incremental change. And if there, if the deal's in California, I mean, the property taxes could go up, you know, 50 to 100x if they've owned it long enough due to, you know, Prop 13 uh, assessed valuation inflation restrictions. So it's just important that, you have some kind of understanding of how local taxing jurisdictions uh, address uh, property taxes post-sale, because oftentimes you'll see those taxes will double. And if the sponsor isn't doubling them in their assumptions, uh, they could find themselves uh, dramatically underperforming. Okay. So, I mean, talk to us a little bit about the current environment, because, I mean, Again, a lot of people have only been in the game for the last three, five years. I think number go up forever. Um, have you seen a market like this in your career? And, you know, what advice would you give to investors who 
are entering the market now and are you know looking to invest with sponsors I know we've talked a lot about underwriting the sponsors and kind of what to look for, but just let's talk about the market in general. Um, how should people be thinking about this market versus other markets? Well, first, with a caveat, there's no such thing as the market because every uh, geographical location has different market dynamics at play. And if you look at future rent growth uh, forecasts in two cities and compare them to one another, uh, you could see two drastically different markets. Here's two simple examples, San Francisco versus Phoenix. Well, in San Francisco, rents are falling and in Phoenix, they're going up like 20% a year. Right. So you got two completely different markets there. So first, you know, comparing the, you know, the actual uh, market uh, where this investment is being contemplated to the assumptions that are being made is, is, is vastly important. And I think people get that wrong uh, a lot more often than they should. Yes, I have seen markets that have like this feel like a forever climb in 1997 through 2005 was a, you know, an eight or nine year period of escalating real estate values. And, and generally about the time when everybody thought they absolutely had to get in, uh, that was around 0405 was, you know, just before the curtain fell. And, you know, everybody got hurt by that attitude. And so I've seen, yes, I've seen it before. I think, you know, uh, these markets are different every time. And even when they become long in the tooth or mature, uh, what the future holds is going to be different every time. You know, I don't think we're going to see another 2006 fall off the cliff uh, this time around because, you know, then it was supported by, you know, all these crazy, you know, if you have a pulse, you can get a loan, you know, kind of home right. buying stuff. And, you know, now you've got a lot more equity and that kind of thing. Uh, but I do see, you know, there's going to be, in my opinion, some slowdown uh, in our future, in part because uh, the rents can't climb 20% a year forever. You know, even in a city like Phoenix, that's got to, that's got to, you're going to reach, you know, some income limits and um, you know, you're going to you're going to hit a bit of a ceiling that's going to slow down. And second is uh, people have been buying uh, at extraordinarily low cap rates because they're factoring in this extraordinarily high rent growth. And so, you know, if future rent growth forecasts aren't looking as rosy, uh, those cap rates are going to begin to uh, decompress. So. Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of interesting dynamics that the future is going to hold. I, I kind of do wonder two, three, four years from now, uh, you know, if there might be some real opportunity in the market from, you know, a lot of these guys that are buying on high leverage bridge debt with three year right. maturities and, you know, maybe running up against a wall. It's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. So I think from a passive investor's viewpoint, you should be looking at the assumptions the sponsors making. You should be looking at how they're financing the deal. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of sponsors are financing with very high leverage bridge debt. Prices have gone up. So that means equity requirements have gone up and it's difficult for sponsors. Some newer sponsors to raise much equity. So they use more debt so they can raise less equity. And, you know, that's a very dangerous recipe to have an over leveraged inexperienced sponsor. It's not an investment I really want to be a passive investor in right now. So I think you know, looking for sponsors that are very conservative in their approach to financing uh, and have, uh, you know, longer term maturities uh, is a, a really good defense mechanism right now. Right. 
Yeah. Well, of course, with the you know the caveat that the extra risk and the extra return might go together, just depending on pe- what people's portfolios look like and how much money they're putting towards that sponsor. But uh, point taken for sure. Well, Brian, I'd, I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm sure we could probably spend another two, three hours talking about this topic. It's a big topic. But uh, why don't you give our folks an idea about where to find you? What's your website? What are you guys into? And maybe give a little plug for your book as well. Yeah, uh, you can find us at uh, the company's Praxis Capital. You can find us at praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. The book is The Hands-Off Investor. It's an insider's guide to investing in passive real estate syndications. Great way for passive investors to learn what to look for when investing in a passive real estate syndication. And it's also a good book for syndication sponsors to read to understand what passive investors are looking for so you know what to bring to the table. Uh, That book is available on Amazon or direct from the publisher at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book, where if you order from there, you do get some bonus content, which is kind of cool. A couple interviews with some passive investors along with uh, some list of questions to ask sponsors. So it's kind of cool. You can also follow me on Instagram at investor Brian Burke. All right. Well, thanks again for taking the time today and we'll have to get together and do another one of these at some point in the future. 